Welcome to They Live By Film, film discussion podcast focused on the Criterion channel and beyond. My name is Adam Lundy and I'm joined as always by my co-hosts Chris Haskell and Zach Bryant. How are you doing today guys? Good, just feeling a little deja vu but I'm good. <laughs> I feel like yeah, I feel like we've we've said all this before. Maybe it's just <laughs> so many episodes, who knows. Uh, you guys enjoying your weekend anyway? I am. I've got all my eyes and my whole face, so I'm doing good. Nice. And Zach, you have all your eyes and face and nose and everything? I hope so. <laughs> I haven't looked in the mirror. Uh, no, not today. I just <laughs> I haven't been out of bed too long. <laughs> uh, well, look, we're going we're gonna to crack straight on in. Um, so the first film we're going to talk about today... And I normally try the pronunciations of their native languages. I'm definitely not going to try this one, mainly because I can't read Persian. Um, this is uh, Abbas Kiristami's 1990 film, uh, which is called Close Up. Um, just to give anyone who hasn't seen the film, just a quick rundown of the plot. This is a really interesting film, and we'll get a little bit deeper into it. It's a ben- basically a docu-fiction film. It blends both documentary elements and recreations by the actual people, not actors. Um, basically follows true story of a guy called Hussein Sabizian. He was a cinephile and he basically impersonated a, another Iranian director called Musin Makamalbaf, uh, basically to convince the family that they were going to be star of his new film, just basically because he really wanted to be a filmmaker. He was really into art and he just kind of took it too far. And, and this film basically explores him as a person and how it affected the family. It follows the real trial. Literally, uh, Kiristami had cameras in the courtroom recording his trial and then re-recording some aspects and afterwards with the actual people involved. So super, super interesting film. I'm a huge Kiristami fan anyway. Chris, if I remember correctly, this is your first Kiristami film. It is, yeah. yeah. Zach, was this your first Kiristami or have you seen Kiristami before? No, I have not. This is my first time. Yeah, great. Well, Kiristami is one of my favorite directors. He's up there with Bergman and Hitchcock for me as one of my favorite directors. So I'm going to be really interested to to hear your guys' reactions. Uh, so who wants to jump in on, on this one first? I'm, I'm happy to, uh, just by way of background, number 81 on the Shoot Pictures list. Wow, yeah. Um, I, I guess there's so much to talk about in this movie. First of all, I loved it. I loved it a lot. Um, I have to figure out where it goes in my kind of rolling top 100. Probably going to be top 25, if not. I, it's just, I love this movie. Um, 81 to me feels right. I, I could, I could yeah. make an agreement for it being higher, but it feels right. Um, I think one of the hardest things to do when you're writing is to, is to kind of tell a complicated story with, with few words. And... To, and I think that I I don't know that I've seen that many people that do it better than 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 Kiristami, at least in close up. Um, so I'll stop there for now. But I I, I really really like um, I, I thought about this movie for many days after I saw it, even when I was watching a lot of the schlock horror that I typically do. <laughs> I kept thinking about close up for a long time. Yeah. If yeah, if you liked this style, you'll like Kiristami. Like to put it in perspective, I love this film. I think I gave it a I gave it a four and a half on Letterboxd. Glowing review. Absolutely love it. And it's not even in my top five Kiristami. So like that will sort of tell you how highly I think of him as a filmmaker. Um yeah, that's great. He's just a he's just a guy who had just a great attitude to film as an art form. A lot of his films are very meta in you know, in not just their 
in the sort of how the film is told, but just, you know, whether it be inside jokes or the whole idea of a film. Um, I, I think I spoke to you guys before about the Coker trilogy, how basically each film in the trilogy is a film within a film almost. So basically the Coker trilogy, the first film is just a normal film. The second film is about a guy, a journalist going to meet the main actor from the first film. And the third film is a fake documentary on them making the second film. Yeah. So just Kiristami just loves playing with the aspects and ideas of cinema and how stories can be portrayed through the art form. And Close Up probably does this in probably in its most obvious way by having, you know, the real people act out scenes and then merging that with real footage of his trial and his interview and things like that. Um, so in terms of blending the reality and fiction, um, Kiristami is probably one of the greatest to do it. And this is probably one of the greatest films to do it, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Before I keep going and gushing here, Zach, what did you think? Okay, so preference. I liked it. I did. I enjoyed it. Um, I guess it comes from me watching like a lot of courtroom stuff. The reenactments didn't really do much for me. Like, I, I feel like this is very heavily a perspective film. Like, you're supposed to get the different perspectives of the family, of the guy on trial, and all that's really great. I, all the stuff in the trial I loved, and I know that's not necessarily interesting filmmaking from um his point of view just because i mean he's setting just a few shots you're getting the judge you're getting the plaintiffs the defendant and um you know i I just find it so engaging though i just like to watch trials and stuff like that the reenactment that i know helped a lot for me was the one on the bus i really liked that one Mm. the rest of them didn't really do much for me because they didn't really change like a perspective for me they didn't like i don't feel like i I gained much in like new insight so i guess i sat there a lot of it questioning i don't want to say questioning their purpose i get why they're there but like their necessity i guess in that sense um are you thinking about this more as like an errol morris type of documentary where it's like you know like it's like somebody who's artfully portraying like kind of reenactments and trying to really get the viewer into what was going on. Like, is that kind of how you're the lens you're like sort of talking about it in? Yeah. Yeah. I guess that would be a fair way to say. Yeah. Got you. Got you. Um, and you know, I, like I said, the way I would, <laughs> I would probably enjoy this way the best, would definitely not be the best way to this film, movie to be made. It's just what I guess what I'm used to watching so many, I've watched so many trials and stuff like that. And I, I just find that whole process fascinating on itself. And that was what made this one so fascinating for me. And I'll probably gush more about the courtroom stuff than anything. But I I really love the insight on how their courtroom operation works. Like, it was so fascinating to because it's, you know, compared to the U.S., it's it's I'm not going to call it casual, but it's it's a lot more of an open forum than you would have here in the U.S., which is here's the procedure. This is the process. You follow it exactly. And I'm sure they have a process. I'm sure they have their own form of due process. I don't know a lot about it. But, you know, just to have the judge like, okay, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? Your mother, tell me about him. Stuff like that. You're like, oh, this is this is interesting. This is really fascinating for me. You, you have to have trust that people are going to be honest to operate the courtroom in that way, right? Yeah. And in this movie, everybody was. Like, even, you know, Sobsian, like, even when it hurt him, he was honest to the judge. And I thought that was super interesting. 
Yeah, and you know, it, 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 they kind of highlight that a little bit because there is that part where they're asking, you know, the judge is asking, would you be willing for the pardon and stuff like that? And they're like, I just feel like, I think what was one of the sons was just like, I feel like it's just a different performance. It's still a performance, though. I mean, yeah. he's he's not being he's not being truthful and i mean he kind of called him out on that and i mean they just you know kudos to the people in that courtroom because you know i imagine some court cases i've watched you have people just straight out saying i think he's lying i think he's deceptive it would be chaos in some aspects you know if you have the a certain type of defendant it would just be chaotic and their mother yeah <laughs> yeah i think it's definitely just a cultural thing um because obviously like just Muslim culture in general is so built on a foundation of sort of trust and honesty. You mm-hmm. know, it can be seen as very um, just looked down upon to lie and things like that. So, you know, especially in front of a judge who they would be just automatically have respect for. Um, like I said this in, I think it was a discussion with you, Chris, when we put the reviews up. Like, I'm not going to sit here and pat the back of their Iranian justice system because of the horrible things they do to homosexuals and women. But um, I think in this instance, like, the judge was very, um, I suppose he was casual and laid back, but he was also very sort of understanding and willing to, willing to allow the the people who were involved to almost make the final decision and pass the judgment rather than he himself. He was almost like, more like a moderator than than a judge, really. Yeah, and he did push. I mean, I'm not gonna say he necessarily pushed pushed hard, but he was, you know, he asked them, I don't know, like three times if they'd be willing to drop the charges. Uh, with him having a promise that he would, you know, be a productive member of society, that he would, you know, start being a better person. And it's kind of like that's a that's a, such an interesting concept to go through um, where you're just, you know, the judge is almost in a sense the lawyer advocating for him. Um, and I think that's kind of an interesting process in itself. Yeah. I, you know, we have a tendency sometimes to go to too far in political stuff. So I want to be really careful with what I'm about to say. I don't, I don't mean to go like too deep into this, but I had a, a business partner for a while who was from Iran and his dad still lived over there. Uh, this was even just up to a few years ago. And I, and I think there's something really interesting about this film that I just kind of want to, you know, Adam, to your point about like, th- there is a, there is what we hear about Iran in the West, right? Which is the majority of it is bad, right? They're either, trying to build nuclear weapons in secret or the views on like women and homosexuals are, are outdated and, and, you know, very like old fashioned, uh, um, um, whatever the, the, like it's, it's rarely like just good news or, or normal news. Right. It's not like somebody celebrated a 12th birthday and it went well. Right. Mm-hmm. Kind of. Um, so I enjoy films that bring sort of like nuance to cultures that we don't really know that much about. Um, and I, and I think that this, you know, as I was, as I got to know my, my business partner and listened to the stories of his dad, who was very pro-West and, and very like, well, anyways, I, I don't want to talk too much about the government, but like, just, it wasn't necessarily like, you, it, it wasn't who you would expect if you were to meet somebody from, you know, from Tehran and just very sort of thoughtful and scientific and pro-West and like, knew a lot about American sports and culture. And I think that films like this are, are helpful in, in sort of giving like a different perspective on uh, a culture that we don't know that much about. Right. Like the, the, the core of this film to me, the reason I loved it so much was that I think there's a lot of people that really resonate with this idea of wanting to be famous or 
like being able to kind of be really creative and and uh, like using a lot of imagination to to raise their status beyond what they can do based off of just their normal means, right? Um, and, and there's something in the character of Sapsi, and even though he was being dishonest, he was so sincere in the reasons why, and he was so just straightforward about like what he was doing, what he was trying to accomplish, how he was trying to like actually become a director, but he didn't have the resources to do it. So this, he was kind of working within his the reality that he had. Um, he wanted to provide for his daughter. Like he wanted to be able to, you know, like there's some simple kind of human things here that I feel like the movie did a good job of bringing out that took me out of the fact that it was happening in Iran and just made this a story that was very relatable and uh, sort of a celebration of art and film and, and that and that's that's kind of what I, I why I'm a little bit obsessed with the movie. Yeah, I really liked um, the element of you know, and I think that's why I like the court scene so much. It's just like when he's just, I mean, the judge lets him go for a long time talking about stuff, and you know, I think he has a part where he talk where he says something like, "Where uh, he give they give him some money," and he said, "You know, it was really the first time anyone basically respected me enough to give me money or." You know, and I would have never got that if I was just who I go home to every day. And yeah. I was like, that's pitiful. I mean, it's not in a, not in a negative way. It's just a pitiful thing to hear from yeah. anyone. But this is one thing about Kiristami. Iran has had a very turbulent and difficult political history. There's a reason why Kiristami and Mahmoud left Iran, um, you know, after a certain a government came to power. But Kiristami's films... Uh, and Mac Melbass films, which he's also the, the guy who Sabzian um, impersonates, is also a fantastic director um, who has a set from Arrow. If you're ever interested in watching his films, um, they are never political. Um, Kirstami's films never political. They're they're always about humans, mm-hmm. and I feel the same way when I watch his films. I, I feel like I want to go to Iran. I want to meet these people. They seem like fantastic. They seem like fantastic, fantastic people. Um, so it's, I think it is important to try and separate the sort of more political view of Iran, which is obviously since the sort of Ayatollah came into power in the 80s has been extremely, extremely difficult in terms of obviously they're not very big fans of the West. Yeah. As like anyone who's seen Argo, Ben Affleck's film, will obviously be able to attest to that and sort of see that, how how that happened. But um. Yeah, one thing about Kiristami's films and, when this, and what this film does, uh, it just tells an intensely human story. It's a complex story. The guy in... The, Sabzian never really gives a proper explanation as to why he did what he did or why he does what he does. Because sometimes humans just do weird shit that we can't really explain. Yeah. In the, in the You know, in, in the sort of... In the moment, you'll just do something and there's no real way to easily explain it sometimes. And this is just one of those moments captured forever on film um and and that's what i love about this film is that it is just an intensely human story and what's what i like about kiristami's films in general that he's not a not a politically charged director at least on a surface level anyway there could be undertones and undercurrents that i don't quite understand um but yeah it's an intensely human story just on the point that you brought up earlier zach about enjoying the sort of courtroom scenes more um so one scene that sort of was brought up um, by a, f- a few people, and I was kind of surprised how many people brought it up in the reviews, was one of the, the early scene of the can 
going down there was it like a, a gas canister or something yeah I, I was trying to figure that out anyway I yeah i i don't I, it didn't ingrain in me too much but I, I liked the scene in general with the um with the journalist getting the taxi to yeah to the house i really really liked that opening scene um the gas canister going down the road i don't know why some people are obsessed with it um, I, I guess because it just lasts long because you're like watching you're like okay where's this gonna go like, yeah, where's this gas canister going? And he does like, I guess you can call it a callback. He does kick it at the end when he gets his recorder. Yeah. But, well, to what end? I don't know. It's just we don't know what... <laughs> it reminds me a lot of I don't know if you guys are familiar with um with the famous pillow shot in Ozu's film Late Spring. Uh, I don't yeah. know if you guys have seen it, but this, this this film is a really famous pillow shot. And pillow shot for people listening who might not know what it means. It just basically means just a shot just to set, you know, just in between scenes, you know, like a shot of outside of a house or something. It's just something that's not doesn't have any action in it. It's just there. There's a famous pillow shot in the middle of Osa's film Late Spring where he just shoots a vase in the middle of a room. And it's probably the most looked at scene of a vase in cinema history. Critics try and figure out what's about. Why did Ozu shoot the vase? Why did he put it in the scene? What's the meaning behind the vase? And people have come up with all sorts of theories behind it. And I'd like to think that Ozu just thought the vase looked nice. And I kind of feel the same way about the tin can. Or the Sometimes gas the curtains are just fucking blue sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sometimes the curtains are just blue, you know. Maybe he, Kurosami just thought that looked cool. <laughs> the guy, the actor, did it by mistake or just in the heat in the moment, and he captured it and thought, this looks nice. Let's put it in the film. Yeah. Uh, I was just interested to see if you if you enjoyed just that scene, not just especially the, the, the tin can in general. Yeah, and I'm not going to sit here and say any of the reenactment stuff was bad, because it was. I think it's well shot. And, you know, you talk about the, uh, was it Coker trilogy? Yeah. I'm really interested in watching that because I think I like, and I don't want to sit here and say like I didn't like the movie because I, I did. It just was missing a little something for me, I guess. And I think all of it is just like, what it, like, what do the reenactments really do for me? And it wasn't a lot. Like, I felt like I got all that information in the trial parts. And like I said, I know that's not interesting filmmaking. So I don't blame him for that. And I understand why people would rather have that. I, and it's part of me just being used to it. You know, when you listen to, like, I, I listened to the Casey Anthony trial for God knows how long that lasted. And, you know, you don't get to see, you're used to not seeing reenactments of stuff. You're listening yeah. to the testimony and imagining it in your head of what happened and what makes sense. Sort of like a witness, I don't know what it's prosecution, uh, anatomy of a murder, where yeah. a lot of it is just in the courtroom talking rather than actually reenacting what happened. Yeah, and I could see how anyway I'd say, yeah, that's not really that interesting. And I agree with them completely. I 100% agree with them. But it's just that that was kind of what left me like, I didn't really need that. But it was nice to have. <laughs> yeah. It, the, yeah. The, this, the, the fan, I thought that just another point, I guess, um, that, that really kind of jumped out to me or, or, or something that I've been thinking about a lot is this idea that we're all kind of acting. Uh, um, you know, every, every character, if, if I think like there's this line that's kind of blurred between documentary and fiction that nobody ever really talks about, right? Mm -hmm. Most documentaries, if people know they're being filmed, like are they really presenting their, their true self? Like, right? right? Like there, there's this interesting discussion that happens around most documentaries. Um, and I feel like the way that he shot this, when, and we don't really know, because apparently even some of the courtroom scenes he scripted, which is crazy. Oh, really? 
Yeah. That's crazy. I did not know that. But not he did all. good then. Yeah, you were. He did really good then because I, I didn't notice any. Yeah, right? And so he got these incredibly honest and sort of human performances out of this non-professional cast, right? Um, and there was, you don't know which of the screen scenes were scripted and which ones were not. And it sort of, there's this overarching question for me when I was watching it of like, can I ever really see a documentary the same way again? Mm. Because I feel like he called out something that's been there in pretty much every documentary I've ever seen, right? Um, especially ones with reenactments. reenactments. Um, uh, or, but any, any film that's following somebody around live in real time, I don't know. I don't know where that line of, of truth and, and fiction kind of blurs, but it, but it, I, it's, I certainly am looking at it differently after seeing this. Well, you know, it's kind of like uh, the big documentary, of course, last year was uh, Joe Exotic and Tiger King. Yeah. And you can, you know, as much as I, I like documentaries, I, I enjoyed the hell out of that. It was fun. It's a completely biased documentary towards certain viewpoints they have in the documentary. And you, yeah. you just have to know that. But it doesn't change anything that you still see uh, some very anti-Carol Baskin shirts everywhere because people truly believe what they see, even if there's a huge bias there for one perspective or the other. And, of course, the viewer brings in their own bias to it. So, yeah, yeah, I think it does highlight a lot of that. She, and she, she did kill her husband, though. That I kind of <laughs> I But my dream is he's actually just sit, he watched that from, like, Panama. He watched that whole documentary <laughs> from Panama. <laughs> funny. Yeah, th- there's like people like. Have you all seen Roger Moore's documentaries? As in, no. as in, as in Batman. Oh, not Batman. James Bond. Roger um, Moore. Sure, no. different Roger Moore. Yeah, James Bond. Uh, Michael Moore. I'm sorry. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. I've seen Michael Moore. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> James. Yeah, Bond. I'm starting. To, I was getting ready to Google. I was like, Very what about this career move for Michael Roger Moore? Moore. <laughs> I... <laughs> well, look, I said I said Batman before James Bond. So let's <laughs> forgive you for saying Roger Moore instead of Michael Moore. But no, um, I actually never have, to be honest. I never have. Wonderful pieces of entertainment, right? Like he's a very good storyteller, um, and it's it's very clear that he's not trying to tell a biased an objective story. Excuse me, he's not interested in objectivity, right? Yeah. And and I think that a lot of people have problems with him because it's like, well, come on, at least tell the other side of the story. Um, like, you know, his like just one example. I mean, there's like any any of his movies, like you can pull 100 examples, but he goes and there's a healthcare documentary he has where he talks about how bad America's healthcare system is versus how good like Europeans, you know, uh, universal healthcare system is. And he finds four Americans or three Americans in Paris and he talks about their experience getting better healthcare in Paris than than in the U.S., right? And so it's they it's true, they probably had a better experience. But if you think about the kind of people that would be Americans living in Paris, they probably have a different experience with healthcare in general than like, you know, they probably have a little bit of a better socioeconomic status, they're probably a little bit more educated. Like like there's there's probably so many things going into just finding three random Americans in Paris. Mm. Um but you know, all you see is them talking about how shitty it is in America and how great it is in, in, in France, right? So that's just one example. Uh, but he is very, very good at telling the story he wants to tell and sort of like finding the right facts to back up his story and make it feel like a documentary. Um, and he has uh, a cinematic nature to him, for sure. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Nice way to say it. 
And I feel like I, you know, I've always kind of been skeptical of his stuff, even though I do enjoy the stories that he tells. I think he's just for the entertainment sake. But films like this are, you know, I'm going to go into uh, even the, the ones that are less obvious now with a little bit more skepticism, I guess. Yeah, I like that. I think it brings a lot of uh, good points to the bias of documentaries in general. And like, while we know this is what, what, would, what would be the title of this docufiction? Is that what uh, it's doc, docufiction is what it's listed as? Yeah, work yeah. of docufiction. And in a sense, I guess you could say all documentaries are to an extent there. There's fiction elements in them because you you got to fill in holes. You have to fill in because you you know it's a story. It's the same. And honestly, using a court system is a good way too because when you're a prosecutor or defendant, at least in the U.S. anyway, your job is to tell it a compelling story. Like yeah. which one of these two stories is more most likely to be accurate? Right. And that's the jury's job to figure out which one they think makes more sense. Okay. Well, speaking of close up, uh, this uh, edition of Collection Corner, I, I want to focus a little bit personally on some some boutique labels, and I'm excited to talk about the fact that we actually are doing a Collection Corner. <laughs> so I know uh, we've been so lucky, and and uh, uh, people have been so kind to speak to us for the last what like five or six weeks now. About that, yeah. Yeah, uh, and so we've got another interview coming up that we just completed. But in the meantime, we actually had a chance to talk about what we've been collecting. Um, so I, I felt like the best thing to do uh, would be to use this uh, this stage and our millions of listeners now to talk about some of the cool uh, up and coming boutique labels uh, that are out there, uh, and then uh, turn it over to you, Adam, and then Zach to uh, to finish it out. I've been. You know, it's interesting, Cauldron Films, it, it feels like forever uh, between their releases, but they just announced today number five and six. So as of June 1st, 2021, they just announced number five and six. Uh, and, I've, and they've got their limited edition slip covers. So, um, Zach, I know it doesn't matter to you. You don't collect slips. Um, <laughs> so you can wait. Yeah, only because <laughs> I know I'll be obsessive if I do. Oh, yeah, yep, yep. <laughs> I, am, I purchased it day one. So... Uh, wanted to make sure I got them, <laughs> um, but they've so Cauldron Films has American Rickshaw, which is Italian, uh, Abracadabra, which is Italian, um, uh, Beyond Terror, and The Crimes of the Black Cat, which uh, they're all Italian. And then there's they have some that are coming out now for the first time uh, that I don't believe are going to be Italian. Um, I think they're moving away from Giallo a little bit, although it's still definitely horror movies. Um, I've also been getting into off the back of the interview with Captain Gibb a few weeks back. I've been getting into Flickr Alley, but I'm doing it in a way that I'm responsible. So I'm only buying it if I've watched the ones I bought. So I'm buying two at a time. Uh, and uh, I got uh, The Garden of Eden, which was an old silent film. Uh, well, I guess they're all old silent films. It's going to be a consistent thing to say. Uh, <laughs> and then, uh, which I thought was fine. It was it was cute. It was a good movie, whatever. It was It was okay. But then Judex, which I'm loving. So Judex, I think we talked about it a little bit, but it's yeah. uh, the, it inspired The Shadow, which inspired Batman. That's Flicker Alley. And then I actually just today got in uh, something that I'm pretty excited about. So they did, you know, Adam, you're talking about that um, uh, uh, that that series from uh, the Irish guy who wrote the history of cinema. What's it called? The oh yeah, Mark Cousins. Um, uh, he did a he did a series on women filmmakers as well as the story of film. Story film, yeah. There you go. So yeah. story film. Uh, there's there's Flickr Alley put out something called Discovering Cinema, which at least is probably a spiritual companion, if not exactly the same type of thing. But cool. it's kind of a history. Um, and then I have to call out Fun City. There, I'm excited. They just I'm should be getting Walking the Edge as soon as they ship that out. So that's number five for them. 
Uh, so Fun City Editions is up to number five, and they've got at least eight uh, titles announced. Um, and then I think the big burning question for me, I'll end with this. The big burning question for me is uh, what is the difference? I think, you know, Zach, you and I were talking about this. What's the difference between Box Office Spectacular and Grindhouse Releasing? Because they're both numbered and they both come out through Grindhouse Releasing and I can't find any information on them or any idea how to go complete on them. So I'm going to go, I'm going to be much slower for that. Grindhouse stuff. Yeah, they're, uh, I have like a bunch of their random stuff, but I haven't, uh, I don't know the order or anything about it. I just know that I think their last one was The Swimmer. Yeah. Yeah, which is technically a box office spectacular thing. That's the thing that's so confusing. Their only Grindhouse releasing ones is the Beyond, the Tough Ones, and then the Duke Mitchell Collection. I'm sure there's more, because those are numbered 11, 12, and 13. <laughs> so there's probably 10 more somewhere there. Um, but all the ones that are kind of they're famous for, like the Cannibal Holocaust, the Ferox, the Pieces, swimmer those are all box office spectacular so i don't know i can't figure it out i can't crack it yeah. in some ways i'm so happy that arrow don't do spine numbers because like every other boutique does and you just feel like you need to buy all <laughs> of the spine numbers whereas at least when you look at your arrow films you know they're just there they're not staring in the face whereas like i have my criterions beside me so like cul-de-sac is number 577 and you just you just look at the number and you think there's 576 films I don't own. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah. If yeah. you're vinegar syndrome, you have three different runs now. <laughs> three different number rounds. Yeah. It's of, true. It's so of the same think. film. No, what it is is they do their main vinegar syndrome. They do uh, uh, vinegar syndrome uh, archives. Mm-hmm. And then Vinegar Syndrome Ultra, which oh, all have their own okay. numbering system. Right. Okay. So it's like sort of three like sub labels within the sort of major overarching label kind of yeah. thing. Okay. That sounds fun. But much <laughs> easier to get on the ground floor for VSA, which has 13, and then uh, VSU is on their second. Two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. If any any people out there wanting to uh, go complete on any sort of uh, boutique label, start with the ones that just started because they'll only have like five. <laughs> Get on the ground floor. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to all the new guys, like Error 4444, who we had on before. Yeah. Uh, uh, Fun City Editions, we had, we had Jonathan on from them. Shout out to those guys. If you want to go complete, just go with those. Don't go Criterion. <laughs> Adam, you yeah. have uh, you got the, your second site today. Are those yes. numbered? All I have is the Dawn of the Dead. They're, so they're I don't know. Not. They're, they're okay. Not. Okay. I only own two, and they're not numbered. So I'm going to assume the the rest aren't numbered either. Um, well, I might as well segue into into my picks then for this. Obviously, it's been so long, as Chris said, since we did a traditional collection corner. I picked up so much stuff since we last spoke about. Uh, things we picked up so i'm just going to give a quick shout out to a couple of things that i picked up so uh, i might as well start with second sight because it only just came in today and obviously you just mentioned it so uh, i got the second sight uh, release of lake mungo which i'll be honest i know nothing about the film i had heard of it just in terms of like s- seeing it show up on lists for like great modern horror films um sony came out relatively recently in the last 20 years anyway um Sounds intriguing. I'll definitely need to dive into it. But like all Second Sight, the packaging is immaculate. Really, really gorgeous looking set. So cannot fault them for that. Uh, another set that I got that also has gorgeous packaging and is from a company that I've been kind of 
I've kind of talked some shit about them, I think, in the past. Maybe not on the podcast, but definitely <laughs> on our Discord. It's Artificial oh. Eye. Oh, yeah. Um, they annoy the crap out of me because their spines are upside down compared to every other label in existence. Um, but they, their set, their Bong Joon-ho um, collection set is is amazing. It's such a gorgeous packaging, really lovely colors. As far as I'm aware, it has all of his feature films like artificial eye okay it's a little bit slim pickings when it comes to special features but i really can't fault them for the packaging and the presentation on this one it looks really really great on your shelf um i got one of the um what will, what will end up being one of the final arrow academy releases if not the final arrow academy release now that they're now that arrow we're going to be focusing on their video um label the sort of main part of their label which was a, a limited edition double feature set which they dubbed um, Tales from the Urban Jungle. It was um, a double set release of two Jules Dassin films, uh, The Naked City and Brute Force. I'd seen them both already on the Criterion channel, and I really liked The Naked City. And I liked Brute Force, but I didn't love it. But the set, again, is gorgeous. Really, really nice limited edition set. Uh, if anyone's like a fan of kind of maybe not maybe not noir but they're they're not quite noir but they're not quite neo-noir they're in that kind of gray sort of area period in the 50s between the two and uh, sort of pre-vertigo but post like all the big noirs and um, so we're in this nice little gray area uh, the naked city especially is fantastic because it was shot on the streets in new york and very little films in that era actually did that you know it was all studio backlots um so naked city for sure i'd recommend and then uh, last thing I'll just give a quick shout out to because it also came in very recently it wouldn't be a collection corner edition if I didn't mention Columbia Noir because uh, I, <laughs> I seem to mention it every freaking time we talk about it uh, I think last time I brought this up I said that I had pre-ordered volume 3 mm-hmm. uh, volume 3 came in last week uh, once again set is absolutely gorgeous immaculate I haven't gotten a chance to watch any of the films from it although I have seen one of the films before The Dark Past I watched it on the Criterion channel last year and thought it was really great. Um, look, if it's anything like the other two Colombian noir sets, the films are not going to be like amazing. They're going to be B-picture noirs, but I don't know. They just always have this charm about them that I that I really love. So, um, yeah, th- those are those are my shout outs for, for this collection corner. If you want to go from there, Zach. All right. Um, a lot of mine is stuff that's kind of coming in, but the first thing of the batch that I've gotten is I finally finished out uh, Day of the Dead. I got my, of the first four, Romero, um, his Dead series. So now that means I have the all from four, all four different uh, boutique levels. Night of the Living Dead came from Criterion. Dawn of the Dead came from Second Sight. Day of the Dead came from Arrow. And Land of the Dead came from Scream. So <laughs> apparently no label could get their hands on all of them. But I have Day of the Dead, and I'm happy about that. So it's a very, it's great. It's a great looking steel book. Um, it's old enough that it actually still has a DVD in it. Um, wow. So it's one of Arrow's early um, dual format ones yeah yeah and they all like all the special features are in standard definition which you know most of the time they are anyway they just throw them on a blu-ray um but beyond that i also have um starting to get back into some giallo stuff so i have uh from arrow as well i have macabre visions coming in which is uh nine films by mario baba which is going to include uh, black sunday the girl who knew too much black sabbath kill baby kill five dolls for an August moon, a Bay of Blood, Baron, 
Baron Blood, Lisa and the Devil, and Rabid Dogs. If it's not obvious, I have not watched like half of these. So. I, I can't decide if I want to know how much you paid for that set, because I know it's out of print. I, I think it would probably be better if I don't say it out loud, so it's not <laughs> me sobbing like on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, the, I actually I, 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 it. It, was, it wasn't too bad. I had to get it from overseas, because God knows it's a whole lot cheaper in your neck of the woods, Adam, than it yeah. is here. <laughs> I, I had looked, I'd, I'd seen the set from someone else's collection and I was wanting to get into Bava and I thought, oh, the set looks perfect. Let me go try buy this. And it was out of print and I took one look at eBay and said, guess Mario Bava isn't for me. Well, I was <laughs> like, when I saw it too, I was like, well, why don't I just, Arrow put out all these films. I was like, why don't I just go buy the separate ones? They all come in the nice window box that they used yeah. to do. And then I saw the price of some of those window boxes and I was like, might as well just buy the set then. That's cheaper <laughs> than trying to buy individually. Um, so I got that coming in, and of course, since it doesn't include it, I also have the Arrow Steelbook of Blood and Black Lace coming in, which looks gorgeous. Can't wait to get it. God knows when that'll be here. Um, and some John Carpenter Steelbooks from France. I don't know what company put it out, but they're 4Ks of They Live, Prince of Darkness, um, I'm blanking. Uh, Why well, can I only remember this? There's four of them total. Madness in the Mount of Madness. Is that one of them? Yeah, yeah. I think that's one of them. I and think then, I've uh, seen the. I think I've seen. Is it like a? It's literally like a four film edition, is it? Or yeah, it's got four different um, steels in it. It's from. I know it comes from Fnac. Um, I know they sell yeah, it, but I, I got I've it from a private seller talk- here. Yeah, I think I've seen the one you're talking about. I saw someone post about it on the boutique Blu-ray sub at some point. Um, looks good though. Have yeah, and so that's kind of where I've been um, since mine is just uh, going to watch some Italian stuff, and then when I get burned out on that, I'll switch to something else. Have you seen the seven, six or seven disc? Um, I'm trying to find the name of the company now. Um, German edition of Dune that's about to hit of David Lynch's Dune. Are you talking about the Arrow or something else? No, Arrow just got announced, and then the next day there was. I'm trying to find it really quick. The Some next German day company blew him out of the water, did they? Yeah, yeah. That's it's embarrassing. Like a, I mean, yeah, it's, it's such a controversial film. I guess I don't know how, what the market is for that, but there's for fans of the film, there's like some beautiful edition coming out of Germany. So uh, I just cra- I have to look into that. I'm kind of curious what label it is. I, I saw a comment on the post about the Diaro Dune release um, on the Batuk Blu-ray sub. And it just mm-hmm. kind of summed up where, um, you know, where the boutique market is right now. And is why are we, why do we keep fetishizing mediocre films? And that's <laughs> essentially where the boutique sort of market is right now, where it's just like, it finds a film like Dune, which a lot of people will say is bad. I, I can't personally say I've seen it, it's, but it's, it's probably mediocre at best, really, from what I've heard. And, but they, they have put out this like incredible release that like, genuinely sort of amazing classical films would probably would only dream for um so it's just kind of funny the way a lot of companies just put so much effort into doing these crazy releases for these you know films that you probably would at the best call it a cult film um and people, people will buy it just because now it has this amazing release whereas they probably wouldn't have been bothered before i've never been bothered to see dune i've never read the book i like david lynch but you know i've never been bothered to see it but i'll probably pick up the arrow at some point you know just because it's there yeah i'm trying to think there is a there you know back in the when i first started collecting this came up in our discussion with the guy from vinegar syndrome as well with justin you know when when you first started collecting the studios were putting out like 
the best films. Like there's a, there's a Citizen Kane box from that studio that's beautiful, like a DVD special release of Citizen Kane. Um, you know, there's like incredible editions of like Gone Like the Wind that are coming out that were like $100, $150, even at the time they were released, you know? And then all of a sudden that market went away. So like you weren't getting that same uh, interest in people buying like another seven disc version of like the Godfather series or something, which is kind of a shame. Like, I don't know if Vinegar Syndrome is going to have to start putting out like, <laughs> you know, like I want a Vinegar Syndrome Godfather set. That is what <laughs> I want. Can you imagine like the internet would break <laughs> or at least the Reddit would break. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, it's kind of I like you know, it's not as bad as like Night of the Living Dead that has like eight million releases because that's it's public domain. Yeah, because some idiot forgot to renew the the, the rights on it. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I own four of them at least. <laughs> I got rid of all of them and just kept the Criterion because I was like, God, the quality on some of them is so bad. I'd say like, it's atrocious. Yeah, I have the Criterion. No, it's so I bad. Can bother by any others. It's interesting the ones that like like Back to the Future, no matter what the format is, they always get a really nice release. Right? It seems like there's this weird middle ground where like if films have a rabid fan base, it doesn't matter if it's smaller than you know, like Fast and the Furious or something like that. If it's if it's got a rabid fan base, they're gonna get a nice release. Yeah, and Dune definitely has like a cult following, I would say. Like mm-hmm. there's definitely like people who will say that is Lynch's best film. Because <laughs> they just love it so much. Well, they'll be happy to hear about all the releases that they. Can oh yeah, get. now they can throw away all their <laughs> throw away all their money. Rights. Yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah, I, we should we should do this more often. <laughs> we should talk about collections more often. Yeah. Collection. <laughs> I've, got, I've never hoping, even heard of that before. I know, right? I was hoping by the time this that we were talking, I'd have the Euro Crypt of Christopher Lee. It shipped, but I don't have it yet, so I can't show it off yet. Oh, yeah, that was the, um, yeah, who was who put that out again? Severin. That? Severin, yeah, I remember seeing the packaging for that. It looked it looked really good. Yeah, um, it's got some of his old films and like a like a bunch of ep- like seventy episodes or something of a TV show he did, kind of similar to the Hitchcock Presents style of a uh, TV show. Cool. So, anyways, next time in in December yeah. when we do another one of these. Yeah, in a few months when we when we're not doing interviews. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and welcome back. Uh, now we're going to be talking about the 1960 French film uh, Eyes Without a Face. Um, you can insert the French uh, pronunciation here if you'd like. Um, a surgeon causes an accident which leaves his daughter disfigured and goes to extreme lengths to give her a new face. It is a black and white horror film. Um, really interesting. Adam, what'd you think? This is my favorite film ever. No, um... <laughs> no, I, I, this is a film I really enjoyed um, the second time around. Uh, I did watch it originally sometime in the last year. I can't remember if it was last summer or sort of early fall, but it was sometime in the last year I watched it. And I'd be interested to know your guys' expectations going in because I had, first time I watched this film, I knew practically nothing about it other than the cover and like one still image of um, the character who wears the mask, um, Chris. Christiana, I think, is her character's name. Um, and I went into the film thinking it was like a slasher film or something. Because <laughs> uh, obviously, like you guys, I'm a big horror fan. I wanted to watch it for a long time. Um, and obviously, when I got the Criterion Channel, this was one of the one of the first that I'd watched uh, when I got the Criterion Channel. Um, so probably was last summer then, now that I'm thinking about it. But 
obviously the first time around I didn't really care that much for it because it's not anything like I thought it was going to be um, but this time when my expectations were set I liked it a hell of a lot more I thought it was a really really great picture um, I said in my review that this film is like a, it's like a fairy tale dressed up as a mad scientist film and that's the real atmosphere that you get it's really charming but also really beguiling uh, with these sort of intense moments thrown in as well um, so I, I really liked it. I'm just wondering what you guys thought, because I'm pretty sure this was your first guy, time watching this film. So I'm interested to know what you guys thought then, if, if you knew much about go, going in and what your expectations were. Uh, you want to go first, Chris? Sure. Yeah, I think just, uh, yeah, I, didn't, I, I try not to read too much about a film before I see it. Uh, I, I like to let it just sort of happen. And, you know, I want to have like kind of an honest experience with it, I guess. Um, uh, based on the cover and the brief description, I was thinking maybe like a like a Quidon or something, or you know, kind of these these ghost stories or like it's kind of fairy tales, like you said. Um, and then with the with the what was happening in the movie, maybe like some kind of a mix of that and like the old Universal monster movies, something like that. Um, in in terms of rankings, I think you know this one. The the only other thing I knew about it is that it was in the 300s. I think it's 311. Let me just look it up really quick. Um, let's see, on the on the They Shoot Pictures list, uh, it is as fast as my control find can work on this giant spreadsheet I have of 19,000 titles. Um, let's see, it's working slow right now. Anyways, it's, it's right around 311. Um, and so that, that's kind of what I knew about it going in. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, exactly. 311. There you go. It just popped up. I, I don't know. I, I don't know how I felt about it. I think that it was, there's elements that I loved. There was elements that I found really uh, beautiful, like especially anything that, that kind of felt like the John Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast, like the old, have you all seen that one? I actually have haven't not no. seen it. No. I've been meaning to. My I have it on Blu-ray. Yeah, I have it on Blu-ray, but I actually never watched it. It's worth a watch. Like it's, it's, you know, it's, it's like the best practical effects you can imagine from, from that year in terms of the way they used darkness and, and blankets and, and sort of uh, 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 tricks of, you know, I guess, perspective to, to make it seem like the castle was magic. Um, and there's like floating candles and some of that kind of stuff. Re really beautifully done. And there was a lot of scenes that were similar to this, I feel, in terms of like the, the dreamlike state. Um, I probably, to your point, I probably do need to watch it again. It was way campier than I expected. And I feel like some of the, especially the, the main doctor, it's kind of a hammy performance. So I, I feel like, you know, knowing that going back in, I probably would have a different experience watching it. Um, and then not to mention being just used to the Curb Your Enthusiasm. Uh, uh, <laughs> just, just on the point of the Curb Your Enthusiasm stuff before we... Before we get Zach's view, and just before we go any further, just, just while Chris mentioned that, this was something I brought up because obviously I, I had seen the film before, so I kind of knew what to expect of the theme music. And I, I had mentioned to some of the guys in the Discord to listen out for the main theme to see if they thought it also sounded like the main theme music for Curb Your Enthusiasm. So I think it'll be fun just for you guys as listeners just to hear them both back to back. So now I'm just going to play the, the, the main theme of um, Eyes Without a Face. So this is the main theme for Eyes Without a Face.
Okay, and now I'm going to play a bit of the main theme for uh, the Larry David comedy series, Curb Your Enthusiasm. They're, they're the same song. They're, they're, they're quite literally the same. Well, maybe not literally the same, but you guys, you guys get where I'm coming from, why I compared them anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, think about it more. I think he just really want, like, I actually, you know, I thought maybe it was an appreciation thing, but I'm going to go back. I think he hated the movie and he wanted to ruin it. Like, he wanted to ruin <laughs> Is it now? Anytime anybody goes back and listens, watches this movie, that's all they're going to think about. Honestly, that's all I can think about when I hear it. You know, I, <laughs> I, I can't unhear it once, because I, I remember it was just it was re, it was really annoying me when I first watched the film. I'm like, where have I heard this music before? Before I just assumed someone had homaged it at some point, and I just went googling, and I don't know how I came across it. But then, because I'd never even I've never even seen an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. I know it exists, and I've seen it on, but I've never actively watched it. Um, <laughs> as soon as I heard it, I just I could not then unhear it afterwards. <laughs> I mean, it's a funny show. It's certainly got eyes without a face. See, I want to do one of those. Me- I don't know if you guys have ever seen the YouTube meme thing where people will take like real life events and then basically when they get humiliated, they play the curb your enthusiasm theme and then they cut to uh, executive producer Larry David. I want to see if that would work for this movie. <laughs> just if someone gets there face chopped off and then just diddle do 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 oh gosh well look what what did you think of this film zach what, what were your expectations i know you're a huge horror buff like we are well um this was one of the few uh that i know i haven't seen in the top 100 for they shoot zombies which for anyone who doesn't know is very similar to they shoot pictures but it focuses solely on horror films um, but it's uh, as far as I know, it's a similar process of how they come up with the ranking. Yeah. Um, they just put out their May 2021 edition for this year. So it is number 43. It's went up one spot since last year. Um, so my expectations were pretty high, probably unfairly. You know, th- when you're dealing with a movie that's 60 years old, you're going to have elements you've seen before. Um, you know, the the blank, pale, emotionless face was, you know, that's. John Carpenter Halloween. Um, even when I looked it up, that's he even admits that was probably an inspiration for him at some point. Um, and you know, so it's 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 hard when you watch like a lot of these really old films, and you're like saying, "Yeah, I've seen that element before," and you're trying to put yourself back into the. I've seen it before, but that's not the movie's fault, <laughs> right? Like, but so much of it's syndrome. so good. The the atmosphere of it's fantastic. It, it's the, sh- the the shadow work is really like that German expressionism, yeah. maybe not quite as like exaggerated as German expressionism to that degree, but it's still there. You know, your gothic stuff, and um, I think uh, you know now that you talk about the campiness of the Doctor, and I was like, you know, now they they really should have taken did a remake in like the mid '80s and just put Donald Pleasance as the Doctor, <laughs> and it would have yeah. been perfect. He would have been awesome in, in this world. <laughs> awesome, and then we could have had um, William Shatner and it was his face painted white as the main. Oh, character. that would have been awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I would have loved it. Um, just to actually kind of bring together two of your points, um, just about the atmosphere. Um, like this film is such fantastic, strange, wistful atmosphere. It's extremely charming, more charming than what you would expect normally from a horror film, which again, if you go into this film expecting a straight up 
horror film blood fest you're going to be barely disappointed um it's much much more it's i don't know just to sort of sum this film up as just a straight laced mad scientist horror film i feel is doing it a massive disservice because it has such a charm to it such a wistfulness really akin to a fairy tale like this like 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 how night of the hunter is a film noir but also a fairy tale this is a horror film but also a fairy tale and while you were saying chris sort of comparing it to to, to beauty and the beast like you can see that with the character of christian who's essentially locked up in her you know almost like a castle it's a, a large mansion but you could see it really as a castle she's kind of locked in the castle mm. because you know of her affliction and she can't leave until it gets fixed it's it's that's the kind of stuff you see in fairy tales like a sleeping beauty kind of thing so yeah. uh, I, I definitely think franju brought a um i don't know he just brought a bit of a sophistication to to the narrative because i don't know if you guys had seen this but when this film was released in america it was not given that treatment at all it had a really goofy name um, like the chamber of horrors of dr faustus or something absolutely just completely bizarre and uh, like something out of a horror like a hammer horror film um and i can only i can only i can only assume that audiences who are expecting a uh this is campy blood. but yeah it's not hammer campy um you know i i feel like they would be barely disappointed with this film which i think is uh despite its campiness and its sort of wistfulness and its charm I still think it is sophisticated and it does have moments of brutality. Um, like there's, mo- there's scenes in this film, especially with the face transplant scenes that are very, they're gory. You know, they, yeah. they are maybe scary is going a bit too far because I, I don't really find any horror film scary unless it's like a, uh, more so sometimes I feel uncomfortable rather than scared. But yeah, this, this film has brutal moments in it that I think really balances out a lot of the levity that the rest of the atmosphere has. I really liked how long it took the reveal to see underneath her, like plaster mask. Like yeah. they waited, like it was over halfway mm-hmm. before I think you see it for the first time. And yeah. maybe the only time Do you only see it once. I'm pretty sure you only see her. Yeah. It's, it's only the once you see what's underneath after that you do see as the first face transplant fails. Right. Yeah sort of slowly um going into necrosis but um yeah i think that's pretty much the only time you see the actual damage of what's underneath her her fake face and you know um one thing that's kind of interesting is um of course we we talked a little bit about the fairy tale aspect the uh probably a little bit of the hammer and of course the universal um Mm -hmm. monsters idea it kind of the relationship is almost not quite, but it, it, it's almost a reverse of what we expect from Frankenstein. Of course, in Frankenstein, Doctor Frankenstein makes his monster. He kind of does it more for to play God, sort of thing. You know, there isn't as much of an he has some emotional connection, but not. It's not a a family personal thing, yeah. and the monster feels like that's his father, that's his creator. While in this one, she's kind of cold and towards him. She, you you feel like a lot of blame for the predicament she's in. Of course, they don't go into it. I don't think too awful much of what exactly. You know, it was a, it was an accident. It was a car wreck. I think is what they yeah, say. Yeah, car accident. But and, she yeah. definitely holds like a very coldness towards him. Like while she's the experiment, and he is the creator in that sense of since that's his daughter, they they it feels like a reverse role of emotions. 
like, you know, especially at the end, you kind of really see how she kind of felt about him in a yeah. lot of ways. It's an interesting dynamic because obviously it's an, like, it's hard to really tell if his want to fix her face is more out of love for her, out of guilt for what he caused, or just his need to feel like he is the best, you know, doing this. Like we see, right. there's a scene in the film where he's giving a talk. So he's obviously someone very respected in his field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, someone for, who, for, who's very good at what he does. Yeah, and we've we've seen that he's successful at it, you know, with his his, his accomplice, his assistant, you know, we see that he he has been successful in the past. So it's an interesting dynamic. Obviously, Christiane is a very sympathetic character. She's not She's not, yeah, like it's not sort fair. of horror. She's yeah. she's not the villain that I expected when I first watched the film. I expected she was going to be the villain, but um, no, she's sympathetic. Like she says many times in the film, just just let me die. You know, she yeah. doesn't want to be part of this experiment. She she just wants to be left alone. Um, so yeah, it's it's a it's a pretty bitterly sad predicament for her. Um, which I suppose they probably could have lent into a little bit more, but I I still think um the, the dynamic between her father, the doctor, and her, and not really knowing, you know, what they really truly feel about one another is is really interesting and something that yeah. maybe it's not played out enough. But I I feel like that the fact that it's not played out enough kind of gives it a little bit of credence where it's ambiguous enough for you to try and put the pieces together yourself and give your own sort of opinion on it. Yeah, so I guess it is ambiguous because after you talked about you know where he's so good in his field, I guess you you go into it trying to decide for yourself whether he's doing this as a doctor or as a father. And yeah, because he's yeah. And I think uh, honestly, now that you said that, I think that's incredibly interesting because I didn't even really put my mind there, but that would make sense as well. And, and there's also something that comes up anytime you, you get into these morally gray kind of areas of science, right? Cause like he, like he is pushing science, right? Like, I mean, it's weird to talk about it objectively in that sense, but like, if he can figure this out, there is good that will come out of the the, the innovation, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, veterans who still try to get transplants from you know grenade detonation and stuff like that. Yeah, that exactly. are getting way better. I mean, it gets better all the time, but it's not at this point yet. And and like, this is always the one piece of scientific sort of progress that I fi- I've always found interesting is like if you look at the way that. Experiments had to be done for a long time. You just had to do it on a human. Like you, we wouldn't have a lot of the innovations we have if it wasn't practiced on on real people. But at the same time, like the 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 path to get there is so brutal and horrific a lot of times. And so, uh, I'm glad science has evolved to a point where we no longer have to do this type of of, of research and study. But like, I think it's an interesting. You know, back in the 50s, uh, you know, I guess this is 1960, but like 40s, 50s, you know. I don't know where science was. I don't know exactly in some dark corners of the world, they probably were still doing this, a lot of, you know, kind of research on, on people. So there's just that other element there too, which is kind of like, he's not wrong. He's just kind of going about it in a, a, a the wrong way, I guess. Right? Yeah. Well, Are you saying like the guys, at the? sorry. Zach. No, I was just going to keep this a short tangent. It's kind of like, um, H H Holmes. He got, he was America's first serial killer. Oh, for yeah. One of, and, uh, he got his job started with uh, grave robbing for doctors. Doctors would pay him to go gr- rob graves. Wow. And, of course, he became a pharmacist himself and then created a horrible, horrible trap house of 
to kill people. It was like a big hotel or something, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. He was. Uh, he'd hire engineers over and over again, and nobody had the actual blueprints of the house, so it was very complicated. That's crazy. Wow. What were you gonna say, Adam? I was gonna say, like, are you implying that the guys at the Mayo Clinic aren't out there kidnapping? girls to do their experiments right now uh, are you saying it's over yeah are you saying that people aren't doing this the covid vaccine out so fast that's it um well no i suppose uh, on that on that front of how sort of people were experimenting um i suppose we do see the doctor um i can't remember his surname now the surname has left me that's something okay. something very french Ganissier. No, i don't want to say it once Genesier, yeah. Um, like obviously, we see that he was experimenting on on animals anyway. Um, you know, dogs especially. I think it was pretty obvious he was doing like skin graft experiments on dogs. And like all fairy tales, there was like that um, moment of uh, poetic justice towards the end regarding that. But um, uh, yeah, like it's it's an interesting dynamic the doctor had because his yeah the performance is hammy. You know, it's it's not a very um, it's not a very nuanced performance from the actor, but his his motives are still very gray as to why he was exactly wanting to do this. Because, like I said before, you know it's clear with the with the assistant character who I thought was great, um, Louise, I think her name was. I thought she was fantastic. Mm -hmm. uh, the way she was able to lure the the girls that um, would get experimented on, um, like we saw that he was successful with her already. So, mm. was he really doing this? to help his daughter was he just trying to advance his own knowledge you know so despite the the character the actor maybe being a bit hammy um or over the top kind of like donald pleasancy as we said um i still think his motives and his characterization are still very very interesting i agree i completely agree i do want to note that franju is that how you say his last name that's how I say it, yeah. <laughs> um, he actually had a mini series called Man Without a Face. I have no idea if there's oh. any like relation to that, but apparently he had an eight episode mini series back in 1975. Just thought it was interesting. Um, it has 19 reviews on IMDb, so good luck oh, trying gosh. to track that down. <laughs> yeah. I'd say that's been one of those ones, like the like we said before about the BBC who taped over their old stuff. Yeah. I'd say I'd say the French probably did that too. Would probably yeah, okay. at some point. Um, the only other thing I'd seen by Franju. Um, I was pretty new to him. Did he? Why do I think he made Panique? He didn't make Panique, no. Uh, but there is another film I definitely saw by this guy um, that Arrow did a release on called uh, Spotlight on a Murderer. And it's another really interesting film that um, has a sort of charming gothicness to it. And it does play with the expectations of the genre. So it's essentially kind of like a murder mystery um, set in this big provincial manor um, and basically the, the lord of the manor dies and following sort of week, all of his nephews and everything come to try and claim their inheritance. They're all there to get their money or whatever. But then the lawyer comes in and says the, he, he's been declared dead, but they have, well, they haven't actually found his body, so they can't legally declare him dead, but nobody's seen him since this day. You need to find him. If, if he doesn't, if nobody finds his body, then nobody's getting their money. And then all the nephews and nieces and stuff start getting killed off one by one. But it's done very light, almost kind of Scooby-Doo-ish, if I want to sort of go with but it's it's way more Scooby-Doo murder mystery than, you know, something a bit more serious. But um, 
it has this incredible sequence and I think Fran is a really talented director um, and you know sequences you can put together there's an incredible sequence in a Spotlight on a Murderer which I won't go too in depth in but basically the the manor hosted this sort of um, event every year where it would put on a show about a historical event that ha- that took place at the manor like hundreds of years ago some battle or something there's no actors in the show the show is told completely through light and sound and as someone telling the story through over a, over a megaphone where he'll say, oh, the knight runs across the courtyard and you'll hear like footsteps and a light will follow, but there'll be no one actually in the light. And it has this incredible sound design. Um, so I just wanted to just bring it up really, pretty quickly, just about Franju as a director from another film I'd seen that I'd really recommend because it's just it's just an odd, quirky, interesting little film. Um, you said Arrow released it? Arrow, Arrow released cool. it definitely in Region B, but I know you guys are Region Free anyway. Um, but yeah, Spotlight on a Murder, really, really interesting, sort of fun film like this. It's sort of charming and beguiling and a little strange, and definitely sort of plays your expectations of a of a genre like this one does. One one quick point on Franju uh, that I thought was super interesting. So all the way back, this was 1960, right? Okay, yeah. All the way back in 1937, he worked with a gentleman named Henri Langlois, um, excuse me for the pronunciation, to start the, the world's largest uh, archive of film documents and, and film objects called the Cinémathèque Francais. And it's still around. And they have daily screenings of, of you know, all the, 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 the work that's recorded in their vaults. Um, but he was an archivist, and he, he then got into making documentary films. Going The first one he did was a brutal kind of documentary about slaughterhouses. Um, and, and then eventually got into feature films. And he was always kind of seemed to be hovering around horror, murder, um, death. Seems like he was interested in, in that, that, that side of the... Of, of you know the artistic expression, I guess, but um, super interesting guy. Seems seemed to be very influential behind the scenes, in addition to obviously having some films that were very highly revered. So um, after I'm going to do after we get off this, I'm going to dig a little bit more into this cinematique Franta uh, Francais. Um, I have to learn a little bit more about that. But that's uh, anyways. Thought that was an interesting detail here about this dude. Yeah, he seems to kind of have a little bit of a graveyard humor sort of idea like well gallows humor because yeah. i mean you know this i think you mentioned it adam it's a, it's pretty light all things considered i mean it's a pretty horrid thing for you know someone to be experimenting and trying to put a face on still other people's faces and kill young girls horribly but it's it's a pretty light whimsical feel to it in a way yeah yeah like i think 10 years later in america it's probably be video nasty <laughs> you know um yeah no it was, a, it was an enjoyable film i'm glad you guys enjoyed it and i definitely would recommend a second watch of it at some point because um i don't know i just feel like you'll get more out of it when you sort of know what to expect going in i definitely feel like i got more out of it the second time yeah i agree I, i'm gonna try to check it out here again in the next year or so okay so have coming to our last segment which is always is any other business uh just quickly a segment to uh, talk about a film that we watched recently that we liked. It doesn't have to be Criterion, doesn't have to be good. It's just something that we we watched and we wanted to give a quick shout out to. Um, I'm just going to hop on to this one first. Um, there's just two films I just want to name drop. I'm not going to go too 
in depth because obviously there's two of them. Um, but I just wanted to bring them up together because sort of like what we were just saying about Eyes Without a Face, um, it was a film, well, obviously, uh, that was a film I'd seen before that I was cold to and then liked a lot more the second time, whereas these are two films by directors I'd previously been cold to, but these are the first, first two films I'd seen that I really loved from them. So um, the first one was uh, Andrei Tarkovsky's film, Andrei Rublev. Mm. Um, like Tarkovsky, his style had almost always left me just cold. Like I would go as far to even say some of his films bored me. Whereas Andrew Rublev is just completely different, despite the film being like just over three hours long, which is pretty big for me. Um, as the guys will know, I'm not a big fan on film run times that are more than two di- two digits long. Um, but uh, yeah, Andrew Rublev just blew me away. The the characterization, the storytelling, the direction, pretty much everything about it was just absolutely and utterly fantastic. Uh, in a similar sort of way to Tarkovsky, then uh, Robert Bresson had also kind of Again, I don't want to say bore because I feel like I'm doing a disservice, but I never warmed to a Bresson film either until I saw Al Hazard Balthazar, which, as people will know, is the movie about the donkey because it was a pretty big meme on the Criterion subreddit a few months ago where everyone just showed clips from other films that had donkeys saying, oh, look, Balthazar was in this film as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the film is really interesting because it's very, very similar thematically and plot to a film that came out the year later, um, which is called Mouchette, which is a basically um, just a, almost like episodic telling of the life of Balthazar, which is this donkey, um, sort of growing up alongside this young girl, Marie. And they're basically seen as like two innocents and how the world around is very corrupt and very dark. Marie gets corrupted by this world, but Balthazar is donkey because he's just a donkey. And Brisson was very, very important as saying that Balthazar is only a donkey. He's not supposed to have a personality. He's just a donkey. Um, but, you know, you, I just really felt for this donkey. I don't know why it was so weird. <laughs> and I felt really bad like writing my review afterwards because like, I seen, I had already seen Mouchette, um, which again is very much she's the innocent and the world around corrupts her. And she's supposed to be the one who stays like almost like a martyr. She's supposed to be the one who gets corrupted and some people have said it's kind of like an idea of like maybe like a Christ-like figure where she, you know, she has to suffer for the sins of the world and Balthazar almost has to do the same. But I didn't really give a shit about Mouchette and I cared way more about the donkey. <laughs> Even though Balthazar is a donkey, Mouchette's like this young girl who's victimized by everyone around her, but I just cared way more about the donkey. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I loved the film. I came out and I was just blown away by the direction. Even though it's very similar to his other films, there's just something about this film that really, really sort of ingrained itself in me. So um yeah, just two two films from uh, acclaimed directors I'd never really got on board with. Uh, finally managed to to sort of uh, to, to get me on board with them. Do you uh, you mentioned in your review that there's uh, a tie into Dostoevsky's The Idiot? Do you have any yeah. any other detail on that? Or? Um, I I haven't read The Idiot. I've read some Dostoevsky, but I haven't read The Idiot. But from what I read on about Balthazar is essentially that. Uh, Bresson was inspired by a passage in The Idiot where a, a donkey is passed from owner to owner and is mistreated by all of them, which is essentially what happens to Balthazar throughout this film. He just gets handed off to different people and is mistreated by them all, uh, except for Marie, who um, who obviously was the young girl who adopted Balthazar as a 
I don't know what a baby donkey is called, but as a baby donkey and they sort of grew up together, they have the only real positive relationship throughout the film. Everyone else kind of mistreats both her and the donkey. Uh, but yeah, apparently Breston was inspired by a passage of Deity that was very similar where a donkey was just being passed to owner to owner and mistreated by them. It's apparently a fowl, so it's the same as a horse. Oh, okay, there we go. I've learned something new today. <laughs> cool. So uh, what, what have you guys seen that you liked? Anyone hop in? You want to go ahead, Jake? Yeah, I'll go in. Um, I, I guess I'll talk about this little-known director called uh, Argento. I'm sure, I don't know if you guys have heard of him. Never heard of him. No, I, I haven't watched a whole lot of like, things, but I did get a chance to rewatch um, Deep Red, kind of in a jello mood, since uh, Edgar Wright's going to be doing his film Last Night in Soho, which has a bunch of Argento themes and stuff in it. So thought I'd go back to one of his. This was always my favorite. And rewatch, it's been a little while. Last time I watched it, I think... I watched the director's cut, and this one was what we call, I don't know why in the U.S. it's called the export cut. Um, but essentially, it's a tighter film. Uh, the the gore and the violence is still in there, but they've just tightened it up. And I do think it's the best way to watch the movie. Like, you know, it's kind of the, it's kind of a big part with Argento is he's a uh, he's a self-indulgent guy. And, you know, I enjoy that to a point, but. You know, I'll tell anyone uh, my my hot take with Argento is I'm not a big fan of Suspiria. Um, I never have been. I love the way the film looks, but I just that's about all I can really talk about with it because I think it it takes all of his elements and puts them up to eleven, and I think it takes like some of the enjoyment out of it for me. And it's like that with Deep Red with his director's cut, but his export cut's so good because it has all of his great elements in it with an edit that doesn't overplay any of them. So, um. You know, it's just your typical Jallo film, you know, murder happens, someone sees murder, terrible investigation, convoluted plot, murder is found at like the last 30 seconds of the movie. Twist ending. And, and, you know, <laughs> you know, go and expecting that. And really what, you know, these directors do, you know, when you talk about Bob or you talk about Fulci or Argento, it's what they bring to the table, what they're directing is. And, you know, so there, there is a there is a reason to be self-indulgent. To an extent, but what I enjoy about Argento that's shown in the export cut is just when that stuff's held back a little bit. You know, he the the camera flows so well around like a room, and yeah. it's it's so, especially in you know the time period it came out. He he was just so confident with the camera, and I think it's a beautiful film. Um, I've always thought Deep Red was probably his best Jallo as well, if not his best film altogether. But it, it was just it was just a blast rewatching it. Yeah, I like Argento, but if any director needs tightening up, it's definitely him. I think I'm, we might have mentioned in a previous podcast, but like the dude loves to meander a lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I'm interested to see the, the that cut of Deep Red because I have the Arrow release, which I'm pretty sure is the director's cut. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't, I don't like Deep Red as much as as Bird with a Crystal Plumage, but they both kind of suffer from the same problems where their plot just goes all over the place. Um, yeah, like in Deep Red, I had to like rewind a little bit because I'm like, wait, why are we at this house? Like, when did this come yeah, up? Yeah, that, that whole house plot point is just, yeah. That was one thing that took me out of Deep Red. Yeah, like Argento, he's a super dynamic filmmaker. Suspiria as well is super, like the color is incredible, cinematography incredible. I probably more in, in your camp, I don't love Suspiria as much as other people do. I think the film is very slow. I liked it a hell of a lot more the first time I watched it, but I rewatched it last year and I was just kind of going like, like let's just get let's just get going, you know? There was just so much. Um, yeah, yeah, and I actually 
you know, I know this is blasphemous. I like the remake a lot because it focuses so much more on the characters and the story. Yeah, I really need to see the remake. I've heard some good things. I've, I've listened to the, the soundtrack because I'm a huge Radiohead fan. So naturally, I yeah, listen Trent to Reznor, the, Yeah, or no, uh, it's um, Tom York. Tom York, yeah, yeah, Tom York. So I've naturally listened to that, and I, and I like that a lot. So I really need to watch that film. But yeah, Argento, super talented guy. But yeah, if, if anyone needs reining in, it's him for sure. And I, I feel like I like Argento as well. I like his movies. He has such an odd relationship with his daughter. Like him filming a sex scene with her in Dracula 2000. Yeah. What? Yeah. yeah. Like, That's Asia. Asia Argento. Is that her name? Asia Argento? I feel yeah. like I've seen her yeah. in horror documentaries, but I don't think I've ever actually seen her in anything. Yeah. Like she's objectively, I mean, well, I guess there's no such thing as objectivity, but she's a beautiful woman. Like, I, you know, she, I, I, and she's actually pretty decent in Land of the Dead, too. Like she has some decent acting in her. Yeah. For the dad to put her in like nudity and sex. That's weird. <laughs> Super it's weird. Italian, I guess. I <laughs> Super weird. But um, anyways, uh, on the on the theme of uh, horror movies, a uh, good good segue. So there, there's two that I'll talk about very briefly. Um, more, more directly tied to horror. Um, I just finally got a copy of. So I'm looking to complete the massacre video. Um, they do a spine numbered um, uh, line of slipcovers, and most of them are still in print. Two were out of print. One of them was only forty bucks or something out of print. It wasn't. It's not. I think. I think it's recently out of print. But then one of them was really hard to find. It, there was actually no copies that I could find available on the um, typical, you know, eBay or Amazon, or Amazon uh, uh, kind of channels or whatever. Uh, but something popped up on eBay and I just got it. It's for Hackle Lantern, and um, I actually have a standard edition, so I've seen it recently. Anyways, I was just looking for this limited one. But if y'all haven't seen Hackle Lantern, it's awesome. It's so good as a slasher movie. Like it's got uh, elements of like kind of like a satanic ritual thing. It's got like a ton of way overacting, super campy, like hammy acting. It's got a music sequence in it, like a straight on, just kind of like rock, like kind of metal sequence in it. Um, and uh, then there's another scene where they're at a party and there's like, they keep cutting to this band and playing music. It's just all over the place in terms of subgenre and, and like, no consistency in, in what, what like elements are in the movie, but it makes for a super fun um, uh, horror movie. And it's the very first movie with Gregory Scott Cummins, which is giving me another excuse to talk about Action USA a few years later where he's the star. So, all I feel around. like that's just going to be the running theme with Chris and this. It's like, I think I'm going to, I want you to start picking random movies and then just seeing how you can tie it back to Action USA. But like six, like like six, six degrees, degrees of Kevin Bacon, but six <laughs> degrees of Action USA. Is trying to link any any film ever made to Action USA in six degrees. That'd be awesome. I'd be so impressed. Challenge accepted. Um, uh, the the other film I'll just talk about briefly uh, on the on the you know topic of Franju. He he directed a uh, remake. 1963, he directed a movie called Judex, which was a remake of a 1916, essentially like Netflix style binge or streaming style binge worthy serial. I don't know how they used to do binge watching back when it was no TV. Maybe they used to go to the theaters once a week and watch a couple back to back. But it's 12 uh, 30 minute shorts uh, segments on, on this uh, serial. Um, uh, not that you eat, but you know, S E R I A L serial. And um, it's uh, it's a movie called Judex, and it's essentially there's a, a hidden kind of masked. Uh, actually, he's not masked, but it's a hidden figure that fights crime and, and protects the citizens of the city at night. Um, not unlike Batman, and, and there's a there's a, even a kind of a direct tie through 
from Judex to the Shadow to then to then Batman. Um, so, anyways, super, you know, it's it's silent movie. So if, if that's not your speed, um, I'm not going to fault you for that. I'm still getting used to silent films, but uh, I think it's handled really well. Super interesting. They've got this one uh, kind of like science fictiony type uh, invention that this guy Judex made, where it's a camera that's on a, a, a like a, I think they call it like they call it a mirror on a, a mechanical arm or something like that. And so he's watching a prisoner. It's just this mirror that moves back and forth. And I imagine for 1916, that would have been pretty advanced. So anyway, it's got some of those kind of elements in it. It's a fun to watch. That wraps up this week's episode of They Live by Film. If you want to read more of our thoughts, visit theylivebyfilm.com. And you can also follow our Letterboxd, Reddit, and Instagram accounts from the links in the description. For now, take care.